When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other host of the podcast. Kyle, it's uh, technically Friday morning. How are you doing? Kevin, I've been better. And I'm basing that off of what we saw just, I mean, a couple hours ago. I mean, it was probably the worst game I've ever seen in NFL history. Kev, we've been around for a while. You know, 25 plus years, we've been watching football for as long as we can probably remember. That Broncos and Colts game was an utter travesty. A monstrosity unlike anything I've ever seen. And bro, we've seen teams go entire seasons without winning a game. And their performances weren't nearly as bad as what we saw on Thursday night. It was absolutely atrocious. But I I mean, silver lining for you, the Colts won. That counts for something, right? If you guys are just listening, Kev has like this like sheepish grin on his face and just he's putting a very mild thumbs up. So <laughs> that's a it's sentiment bad. of a that's it. That's it. It's bad. I mean, for the sake of my neighbors who are already difficult enough below me, um, I'm going to keep a monotone voice for the majority of this episode as it is almost 1230 at night on a Thursday, which is now Friday. Um I yelled at the top of my lungs driving home from Isabel's house. Um, Kyle got the brunt of that. He laughed the entire time because obviously it wasn't directed at him. But my frustration was let out pretty much that whole drive home while on the phone with Kyle. So, yeah, not happy. But we'll get into why shortly. Kev, uh, obviously we'll go over that game first. But we actually have a decent slate of games to go over uh, this upcoming weekend. Uh, You ready to dive into these topics, though? Please. Let's talk about something that's not the Colts. <laughs> like, like we said, we'll we'll talk about the Colts and the Broncos. We'll we'll get that out of the way first. Uh, after that, though, uh, we got some decent games to go over. Uh, just to kind of start things out, uh, after the Colts and Broncos game, we'll go over the Giants and the Packers game. Uh, it's a decent slate of two, three, and one teams going at it in, into Week Five. After that, we'll talk about the Cowboys and the Rams, and really, we'll talk about the Cowboys. Just really kind of awe-inspiring start, despite the fact that they looked dead in the water after Dak Prescott went down in week one, but Cooper Rush and that Cowboys defense have proved themselves quite valuable with a three and one start. And then, you know, looking at the Rams, the Rams have been up and down to say the least so far. And after that, we'll kick it over to the Sunday night game. that's going to take place between the Bengals and the Ravens. Obviously that's a huge AFC North divisional game. Uh, it's going to be a lot of implications going into that game. Granted it is October, but uh, whoever's going to win that game would bump up to over 500. Uh, the team that would lose that game would bump under 500. So there's a lot going into that game. 
After that, we'll talk about the Monday night matchup, which is also another very compelling game. Uh, it's going to be an AFC West battle between the Raiders and the Chiefs. The Raiders got their first win last week, and then the Chiefs just pretty much decimated Tampa on that Sunday night matchup uh, quite convincingly. And then pretty much to round out the episode, uh, we'll kick it over to Kevin. I know Kevin's going to have some words on Aaron Judge's historic season. I think it's safe to say that uh, pretty much it's one of the best power hitter seasons that we've seen in quite some time. Uh, Judge hit 62 home runs this year. He broke the AL record that was held by Roger Maris for decades and did it on the second to last game. And he did it against the Texas Rangers in uh, quite stunning fashion. I think it was like on the third pitch. So Yeah, of the at-bat. So it really just... Really, just kind of encapsulates a great season from Aaron Judge, and uh, he could definitely be in the running for AL MVP. I know there's some, there's like a little bit of a conversation about Shohei Otani, but I think Judge is probably at the forefront of that MVP discussion. But we'll save that towards the end of the episode. I know Kevin's going to have a lot to say about that. So, uh, with that said, let's dive into this monstrosity of the Colts and the Broncos game that took place on Thursday night. Really, America lost. I understand the Colts won this game. They won the score by the 12 to 9. But this was a game that if you had watched this game, it was a waste of three and a half hours of your time. And if anything, the NFL should be sending apology letters to everybody that watched that game. And probably Amazon Prime that probably spent over tens of millions of dollars to broadcast that game uh, to a national audience and an international audience by that extension too. So... Kevin, I'm just going to kick this one to you. What do you make of that Colts and Broncos game that took place last night? That was that was horrible. As a Colts fan, obviously I'm fanly invested, and fanly is not even a word. So, I mean, I'm invested as a fan. Um, as a football fan, that was atrocious. That was very boring. And as a defensive fan, as somebody who likes to watch defensive matchups... Eh, I can't even say that it was a defensive showdown because both offenses just looked completely clueless. Um, both defenses looked better than what they should have, but I mean, there were so many missed opportunities on both sides here. I mean, Denver overthrew a couple of open receivers. Indianapolis had a couple of open receivers but didn't have the time to because of their offensive line play. Um, turnovers were an issue. Both teams were unable to run the football. I mean, it just... Obviously, later in the game, holes opened up, overtime happened. There were a, a good amount of plays where, you know, there were some padded stats. But if you look at the totality of the game, um, it was just a mess from the very beginning. I mean, Naeem Hines dropped the very first pass of the game. Two plays later, if not a play later, he gets knocked out of the game with a concussion. We potentially lose Quiddy Pay for the year with what looked to be an Achilles injury. In my personal opinion, he went down and grabbed his calf, couldn't walk off his own, off of his own strength, so he had to be carted off of the field. I mean, it just, it looked bad. It just, it looked bad for both parties. Um, I, if So check this out. Kyle gave the percentages. I'm going to actually laugh really quick. I don't know how I memorized this. Amazon paid, I believe, 13.1, if not $13.2 billion over the next 11 years to host Thursday Night Football, like through the whole Amazon process, right? Which evens out to about, I believe, $1.18 billion per NFL game because there's 15 per football season. games. Well, per season, excuse me. Um, there's 15 Thursday night football games. Uh, this game cost them $78 million. This game was worth three quarters of a hundred million dollars. 
Let that sink in. The, the, as Again, as a Colts fan, this three, four hours of my life, I'll never get back. A win is a win, no matter how it's done. At the end of the day, this will carry on throughout the rest of the year, but as a Colts fan, I'm not happy. The offensive line needs to be fired. Everybody on this team needs to be let go. Everybody on this coaching staff needs to be let go. Everybody, maybe, maybe Jim Irsay needs to sell the team. I don't, there's, no one is safe from my wrath. And again, the only reason I'm not yelling is because I have neighbors and because I live in an apartment complex and it's fucking late. But I alluded this to Kyle. Even Quentin Nelson needs to go. He was getting bullied all night too. Left tackle, Ray, Ryman, Raymond, whatever the hell his name, he's got to fucking go. Braden Smith had to get moved to freaking guard because he, he's got to go. Matt, Matt Pryor needs to be in the CFL, in the Indoor Football League, on a cheerleading team. I don't give a shit. You got to go. Ryan Kelly, he hasn't been the same, unfortunately, since the passing of his daughter or you know premature daughter last season. He came back, and he just he hasn't really been into it. So I, I will give him some sort of a pass. But like from a physical standpoint, there's no reason why you shouldn't be playing at the level that you have been over the last four years because you've been a pro bowler three years in a row. Um, you got to fucking go. So, yeah, no, again, no one is safe. Danny Pinter had to come in. He was getting absolutely annihilated. He's got to go. Frank Reich, listen to me. You fucking human being, you. You suck. You're horrible. Everything about you sucks in the play calling aspect. You're a great human being. You're a great coach. You're a great leader. I've said that a thousand times. For you to continue to leave your rookie left tackle alone on an island the entire game when we gave up six, seven sacks to a quarterback 35 plus years old for an offense that is probably the worst in the league in terms of scoring points, you continued to leave him alone without tight end help, wide receiver help in terms of chip blocking, running back, anything. You left him alone, and he was embarrassed. In the first half, he had four penalties. Three of them were called because one was declined. Three holdings and a false start. In that half alone, you should have been removed from the game. The only saving grace to this team that I will 100% die on this hill, Matt Ryan's not the problem. He's thrown, he's had, excuse me, he's had a lot of fumbles. What are you going to do when you have no protection? He's thrown a couple of interceptions. Again, when you look at it in the film, today's two interceptions were unacceptable. But overall, in totality, when you're trying to force balls downfield, when you're trying to make plays happen and extend it with your legs, and he's never had legs to begin with, even when he was drafted, uh, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to put the ball in places that they shouldn't be. But when you have absolutely no time to throw the football, there's, there's nothing you can do. For those of you that are saying Matt's washed, for those of you that are saying bring back Carson, I need you all to shut up, stop watching football, and stop commenting on our videos because you have no concept of what it is to play this sport. You don't understand what goes into it. You don't understand what it means to play if you're saying that Matt Ryan sucks. And here's why. The last two drives, Matt Ryan was damn near flawless. In the last two drives, Matt Ryan decimated Denver's defense when given time. In the last two drives, we were able to come back and win this game, albeit not in a fancy fashion, but when you're able to dissect a defense in a secondary that contains Patrick Sertain and a couple of other studs, you're really going to look at me and you're going to tell me, Matt Ryan's washed. No. We're talking about the man had been sacked up to that point six times. The man had been hit over ten times, pressured the entire game, exhausted, mentally fatigued, pretty much checked out, I would be. And he was able to come into, this, into those final two drives, 
to lead us down the field and score to go into overtime, and then to lead us in overtime down the field to score in a field goal. The defense kept us in the game all game because we also had a couple of sacks on Russell. We forced him to make some interceptions. So I won't go out there and say it was all Matt Ryan, but for you to put all of this on Matt, the sport, Kyle, I'm going to need you to pan back in. I'm going to ask you some questions. In, In the sport of football in which you've played the position of offensive line, what's your job as an offensive lineman? It's your quarterback. Right? You you have to protect the quarterback. Okay, so what happens when you don't do your job? Uh, usually, the quarterback will either get sacked or the play gets busted. And then what does that lead to? Uh, the offense moves back, uh, puts your team in a hole, or puts the offense in a hole, and uh, it just puts you at a larger down a distance. It's a, it's a much more difficult task to be able to convert on second and third down. Now, if this is a repeating occurrence throughout the integrity of the game, or the entirety of the game, excuse me, what does that mean for your defense? What what what, what are they doing? Well, it puts your defense on your heel. It puts them on their heels, because if you're just constantly punting the ball back to the other team, you know, eventually the other team's going to get somewhat decent field position to work with, and then, you know, when you're working with a shortened field, as far as your defense is concerned, you, you know, the opportunity, or at least the chance of giving up a touchdown goes up or at least a field goal, at least. Now, just, just, just to speak to the people that don't know what that means, your defense means it's going to get tired. It's going to get really, really tired because they're human beings. And I'm, I'm whispering because I'm frustrated because everybody in the comments of our videos are just saying Matt's washed. If you snap the football and you have zero time to throw the football, where would you like the football to go? Where would you like the offense to go? Where would you like the quarterback to throw the ball if he has no time to throw the ball? I'm asking because these are all common sense questions to all of you NFL professionals that seem to know because Matt Ryan has thrown and gotten a, a sacked a lot of times with fumbles. You, you magically understand how it works. You could put the greatest quarterback of all time in Tom Brady on this offensive line right now, and he'd get the same obliteration that he would be getting in Tampa. Now, albeit they have a bad offensive line too, I'm saying you can put anybody. You could put Lamar Jackson in this system. You can put Justin Herbert in this system. You can put Joe Montana in this system. Hell, you can put Michael Vick, one of the most elusive quarterbacks in the game, in this system, and they would struggle. Going backwards to Carson Wentz, who, by the way, is a one in three. Just putting that out there. That's still a worse record than the Colts. Wouldn't do a damn thing. He might even make it worse because when Carson tries to escape pressure, he tends to throw the ball down the field 50 yards or he throws it left-handed. That joke's never going to end for me. So I'm going to end it on this note. For Matt Ryan to end the game on two game-winning drives, the one to go to OT and the one to win in overtime, for you to tell me this team is bad because of his performance and you didn't watch this game, you don't understand anything that's happening on this team. We are by far the worst offensive team in the NFL. We scored 12 points. We averaged fucking 14. This brings our point total down. I don't know math, but it's less than 14 now. This is an atrocity. I blame Frank Reich. I blame Chris Ballard for the personnel that we have on this team. And the coaching staff outside of Gus Bradley finding a way to limit the explosiveness of some of these Broncos receivers outside of that overtime drive where we look like dog shit, we, we, we got a lot of work to do. Unless we win the Super Bowl, which obviously I don't believe is even humanly possible with the way we're playing. 
I don't care if we go to the AFC Championship and we lose on a game-winning field goal from 78 yards out. Frank Reich has shown me nothing in the last three seasons, albeit three different quarterbacks. We are going to be a winning football team. We have progressively gotten worse each and every year, and he is the only sole consistent piece that is still on this team. He's got to go, and the only reason Chris Ballard gets a pass is because he's the one that's assembled this defense with draft picks, trading for Buckner, trading for Ngakwe, and a couple of other stars. That's all I have to say. Kyle, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I'm absolutely checked out with this football team. I mean, for me, like just the game itself between the Broncos and the Colts, it's the worst game that I've ever witnessed. And granted, Kev, we've seen some stinkers throughout Snooze our times. I mean, there have been some really bad games. I mean, I remember the the Super Bowl when the Patriots played the Rams a couple of years back in Super Bowl 53. That game was a snooze fest. It was 13 to 3. Granted, there was a touchdown scored, but it was a defensive battle similar to this one. But I know you focused a lot with the Colts, and I'm going to kind of focus on Denver here because the way that Denver looks right now, it's atrocious. Bad. And they invested so much money into Russell Wilson. And to rebuild that offense, there may be some fans possibly looking at, like, would Drew Locke have been worse? Because I don't know how Denver looks this bad. Like, this is insane how bad they look. Because I I remember Shannon Sharp was talking about this uh, throughout the game. And he was of the mindset, and I could kind of understand where he's coming from, is that the Broncos got a lemon with Russell Wilson. And I so far, I don't think he's that off the mark because I mean looking back at this game, it's really been just a microcosm of what the Broncos offense has been the entire year. And it just seems like they can't get into any sort of rhythm with Russell at the helm. Now I don't know if it's Russell, I don't know if it's if it's Hackett with the play calling. It could be just a mixture of all those things combined together. The offensive line is definitely banged up, and it didn't get any better. Um, based off of that Colts game, there were a couple offensive linemen that got hurt with Denver last night. So overall, it, it just seems like Denver's in a really tough spot here. But even despite that, there was an opportunity for the Broncos to win that game with about two and a half to three minutes left in the game. And Russell throws an interception towards Stephon Gilmore. And ends up being a touchback. I mean, at this point, your defense has been playing so well against the Colts. The worst thing that you could do in that situation is throw an interception. And that's exactly what he did. Because more than likely, Denver was going to at least get three points. And had Russell made a better decision, it's probably going to end up being a touchdown. So, or at least a first down. You know, if they got a touchdown later on, you know, so be it. But it seemed like the Broncos had that game in hand and Russell just threw the game away. And when it came to overtime, I got to give the Colts credit. They took advantage of the situation. Uh, They were able to get a field goal uh, in that first possession of overtime. And it looked like Denver was on essentially a game-winning drive or at least a game-tying drive. And then, once again, their drive stalled out in the red zone. And it's really been a major point of concern with the Broncos' offense this year is that they just can't capitalize in the red zone. No matter how far they get into the red zone, they just can't capitalize and get touchdowns on the board. And the same thing happened. They go for it on fourth and one, and Stephon Gilmore blocks the pass, and the game's over. It was one of those games where 
if you walk away from it, granted, albeit an ugly game, you just look towards it as, you know, one of those games in the past that hopefully you could build off of to build some sort of momentum. But if you're Denver, you can't look at that this way because you lost a game where there were no touchdowns scored. Your defense played absolutely stellar the entire game and your offense was essentially a no-show. I think that, you know, when it comes to Russell Wilson and how long he's going to be with Denver, I mean, there are fans that probably want him gone already. And we're only five games into the season. Fans were leaving the stadium before overtime even started. They had enough of it. And honestly, from what I saw in that game, I don't blame them. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of their money. And when it comes to Amazon Prime, because they're the one that broadcasted this game, I wouldn't be surprised if they walk into those NFL executive offices and they're like, what are you guys doing? This is atrocious. Now, granted, I know Amazon probably signed up, you know, with these games in mind, but the fact that the NFL put this on Thursday night football and the way that these teams played was absolutely disgraceful. And it's just an embarrassment as far as I'm concerned. I understand the Colts won this game. I don't think it's anything to be proud of. You walk away with a dub. That's pretty much it. Because as far as I'm concerned, Colts won, but everybody else lost because it was just a waste of time. And I don't know how the Broncos are going to be able to redeem themselves after that. That was a dreadful performance uh, from their perspective. So all in all, it was a complete waste of time. And if you're Amazon Prime, you may have to second guess that deal with the NFL because it's not necessarily looking good right now. I mean, of course, at the end of the day, you're also looking at it from the perspective of Russell just, for whatever reason, just does not look good at all. There's no excuse for it. And there's it's it's not just the play calling either or his performance. There were several plays where there just looked to be miscommunication with the receiving core. Russell puts the ball over the top and the receiver runs a different route or the receiver uh, runs in instead of out and Russell puts the ball on the opposite side. So there's something going on internally with that receiving core and Russell Wilson to where they're not on the same page whatsoever. No. And it's just... It's adding to the fuel of, holy shit, we have such a good roster and we're not performing to the magnitude we have to. These two teams are very similar in the sense of they have two Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Obviously, Russell, I would 100% say that is better than Matt Ryan, both of them playing poorly this season. But in general, if I had to pick one, I'd pick Russell. Um, Both offensive lines are atrocious. Both receive Well, no, Denver's receiving core is better. But I'm saying in the sense of, both offenses are bad. Both defenses are elite. And obviously, we don't have uh, Shaq Leonard out there and, you know, a couple of other defensive players. But I'm looking at it from the sense of they're being both teams are being carried by the defense and the offenses are underperforming. They're underwhelming. And it's not a good look for either coaching staff. Now, Frank's been on the hot seat personally for me, like I said, for the past three years. Hackett just got there. And he's about to get booed out of town with Russell Wilson. When in the hell have you ever seen a Hall of Fame quarterback that is still... Obviously, outside of his prime, but he's nowhere near Tom Brady's age. He's not coming off of major surgery or like washed up. He had a solid yeah. year last year when he was in, when he was healthy in Seattle. There's no reason why this team should be this bad. No, it, to me, that last play just kind of encapsulates really the discord that you've seen with Russell and the receivers. Hamler was wide open. There was nobody from the Colts defense defending him. Nobody. Which is also frustrating on our part to know that we got lucky, not skill. 
So because, that's great. Because Russ was eyeing Judy the entire time. He never even looked right. That whole time he was focused on, on the left side. And I will say, Russell actually didn't put a bad ball towards Judy on that play. It was just a good play by Gilmore. He knocked it down. And I think just when it comes to the, the fans, the, that was the, the biggest thing that I took away from this game. They are the ones that are just voicing their displeasure. I mean, Kevin was starting off early, early, and it did not stop. Whenever the, the Broncos even had a simple incompletion, we're talking Booze, about incompletions, booze. And this is like, it's honestly like reminds me of what the Browns went through when they went through that ugly stretch a couple of years ago where they couldn't win a game. But I've never seen a fan base actually come into a year actually excited about, you know, bringing someone in like Russell Wilson. It's going to reset uh, the Broncos in the AFC West, actually going to give them a chance to be viable in the AFC. And it looks like an absolute tire fire. And I have, I'm with those fans, man. Those fans are going through it right now. And I understand the team is not happy with the results that they're putting up, you know, week in and week out. But, you know, those fans, man, they are just, they're just up in arms with that team. And I don't blame them. But it's, yeah. they are, they are relentless with their booze. And if I'm them, I'd keep going. Until the team steps up and gets their head out of their asses. Keep on going with it. Because as far as I'm concerned, I, I wouldn't waste my time and money on that team. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the time. It's not worth the money. Until this team steps it up. And it's just... I, Kev, I know we spent probably close to 20 to 25 minutes just on this one game alone. But, like... It, I'm walking away it from that to be game. It, just, it needed to be talked about. This, I'm this walking, was horrible. I'm walking away from this game as like, this was just atrocious on every single level that you can think of. And to me, like, it's definitely up there, if not the worst game I've ever seen on an NFL field. It's, it, I mean, granted, there have been games where it the weather has been awful and it just leads to kind of a, kind of a gutter and, and grimy game altogether. But... As far as I t- as far as I could tell, it looked like perfect weather conditions to me in Denver that night. So I just, man, I just that's all I got. I, I, can't, I can't, I can't, bro. I I can't with that Imagine game. Imagine how I, can't I with, feel. We can we can move on. Silver lining with you is you can walk away at five hundred. That's it. Yeah, Other than that, I, I'd burn the tape. Burn the tape. Your defense played solid. Defense played good. That's pretty much the best thing that you can walk away with. Don't care. Yeah. So just that just, about uh, that. That that'll, that'll sum it up. I'll do. I'll, I'll I'll do this next game. You know, I'll let you talk a little bit. Um. So we're gonna move into our Sunday slate. So we got a couple of games here that we're interested in that we feel that could be some marquee matchups. And the first one we're gonna talk about uh, is the New York Giants headed over to Green Bay and Lambeau. Uh, to face the Green Bay Packers. Both teams coming off of a uh, three and one performance. Obviously, New York getting a victory last week, as well as Green Bay. And we are looking at both teams saying, surprisingly enough, I didn't expect either of them to be 3-1, and one, especially not New York. Now, Green Bay comes off of a nail-biter against Kyle's team in overtime uh, to a third-string quarterback, so it doesn't look very good for them. 
And the Giants just look to be a very tough, gritty team that is coming out of the woodworks that is continuing to play solid football, albeit they haven't necessarily played the best of teams outside of the Cowboys, who they lost to. But again, holding a record of 3-1. and one. So Kyle, um, who do you have coming out of this game and why? I'm going to go with the Packers on this one. This game's a little bit tricky for me because this game's not being played in the States. It's being played over in London because the start time's at 930 oh, in the morning. Right. So Lambo. this is going to be kind of an interesting game just because of the time difference that the teams are going to have to experience in this game. But I am favoring the Packers and for a couple of reasons. When I was watching Aaron Rodgers go up against the Patriots last week, granted, the Packers didn't have their best performance it was enough to get by and there were definitely some times where there was some discord between Aaron Rodgers and essentially the entire offensive personnel whether it was the offensive line or it was the receivers and really the biggest thing when it comes to the Packers is whether or not these young wide receivers can step up and rise to the occasion and at times they have and at times they haven't Dobbs has been one where at times he's looked pretty solid Christian Watson has had some moments but then you know you're on the flip side and they have some drops, or they're turning the ball over. It's just, there's a lot of inconsistency when it comes to these young wide receivers that the Packers have. But, you know, when you have Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb, at least you have some stability to be able to bring to that wide receiving court. And I think I think that's going to be a point of emphasis in this game with Aaron Rodgers. I think he's going to just focus on being able to distribute that football to guys that he could trust. I think Randall Cobb, Alan Lazard, and Robert Tunyon are going to be at the top of that list. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Aaron Jones gets the rock probably 15 to 20 times and tries to establish some sort of foothold in this game against the Giants. And now granted, I think that's going to be a difficult task because the Giants defense has been stout this year so far. You know, looking at the games that they've had, the only game where they've really kind of given up any sort of offense to the team they're going up against has maybe been against the Cowboys and the Titans. But outside of that, They've looked stellar on the defensive side of the ball, and I wouldn't be surprised if that continues going into this game. So when I look at the Giants, the Giants have definitely had success early on, especially with Saquon. Saquon's had quite a resurgent return uh, in the first couple games of the year, and hopefully he stays healthy just because I love the fact that Saquon's getting his touches and he's making the most of it. And I definitely think that there's some opportunity for him to be able to run the ball effectively. It's just... I think that Packers defense is actually pretty solid so far. And at times they've been able to slow down the run game. And I think that there's a very good chance that the Packers can do that in this one. And I just don't have a lot of faith that Daniel Jones is going to be able to carry that Giants offense over Green Bay's defense. And Green Bay's defense has looked sporadically good at times. Yet you looked to last week and they kind of stunk it up against a third string quarterback in Bailey's app. So the Packers defense is up and down too. And there's, Definitely some opportunities for Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, and that offense to exploit that defense to get some points on the board. But I just don't think it's going to be enough. I think the Packers just have enough to get by the Giants in this one. I think it's going to be a relatively close game. I wouldn't be surprised if this game is decided by three or four points when it's all said and done. But I am going to say the Packers win this one by the score of 24-20, to 20, and then they would improve to 4-1 and one on the season. I'd love to pick the Giants. I would. But the fact that I'm looking at the injury report right now, and it being, of course, Friday, and the final report will come out, I believe, if not tomorrow, it'll come out. Well, it's not tomorrow. If it doesn't come out today, it'll come out on Saturday. Um, they have no receivers. Kadarius Tony's out. 
Kenny Galladay's out. Darius Slayton's out. Sterling Shepard tore his ACL. Wendell Robinson is questionable. That leaves Daniel Jones with basically no one to throw the football to. And I'm not discrediting any other wide receivers that are on the roster, but again, if you don't have at least nameable players, the chemistry is going to be limited because of the reps that you have not had all season because of the other receivers that have taken that opportunity. Uh, That's going to lean too much pressure on Saquon. We know that Saquon's already hurt, or excuse me, has been hurt. We know that Saquon is obviously battling um, the the naysayers and of course the critics of saying, you know, like he's washed or, you know, he's, he's going to get injured at whatever point that is. They're going to have to lean on Daniel Jones's running capabilities as well as Saquon. And without the two of them with a stout, or should I say decently stout uh, green Bay defense, it's going to provide them with a challenge. Now I will say that the giants defense as Kyle alluded to has shown up uh, when they've needed to, and they've done what they needed to do up to this point. So I will give them credit. And I will say that this will unfortunately be another ugly game because both offenses don't necessarily impress me. If I had to give an edge, I will give an edge because of names, not performance. Aaron Rodgers is better than Daniel Jones. I think that the combination of A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones are better than Saquon basically being the only source of offense. I will give Green Bay the edge. I will agree with Kyle. It'll probably be around 21 to 17, maybe even 20 to 24, like he said. But this is going to be one of those ugly, tight games where whoever makes the first mistake is probably going to be the team that unfortunately loses. But yeah, no, I think that Aaron Rodgers is going to find a way to just carve up the Giants defense just enough. And by carve up, I mean find some holes, maybe put some... uh, some creative plays along with, you know, Matt LaFleur's offense and figure out some ways to kind of manipulate that giant secondary. They just signed Landon Collins back. I don't know if he's even going to be eligible to play because it just happened today, but the Giants desperately need secondary help. They desperately need receiver depth. And of course, outside of their left tackle, um, I always forget his name, man. It's like Andrew something. I think Andrew Thomas, uh, he's one of the better left tackles in football. God, I wish he was a cult at this point. Um, outside of that offensive lineman, I I really don't see New York being able to stop the pass rush of Green Bay either. So I will give Green Bay the edge ever so slightly, but another snooze fest of a game personally. Yeah. And even though that you're, you are coming into this game and I mean, on paper, it's actually not a bad matchup. Both teams are three and one. It's kind of a surprise, but I do think that playing over in London is going to be a factor. And I think when you factor in the time difference, you know, compared to, you know, being in Green Bay or being in New York, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely a challenge for those teams to adjust to. But I think as far as just the game itself, I think it's going to be kind of one of those battle in the trenches type games. I think it's going to be a largely defensive battle. I think both teams are going to struggle offensively. And, you know, just to kind of kick it, kick it to Green Bay here for a minute. I mean, granted, you know, they did win against the Patriots last week, but albeit they had to work at it. It did not come easy. And New England is not necessarily one of the best teams to work with right now. And I think the Giants defense, when you look at how they played so far, they have a better defense than what they had to deal with with New England last week. So there's no guarantee that the Packers offense is going to hum on all cylinders and they're going to put 30 points on the board. They haven't really been able to do that at all this year. So, you know, I'm... I'm with you 100%. I think this is going to be a relatively low-scoring game. I think teams are going to have to take advantage of some possible turnovers that they can use you know, to put up points in their favor on the board. But yeah, I think it's going to be a slugfest. You know, it's really going to come down to who's going to win that battle on the line of scrimmage. And I think that's going to be a big factor going into this game. But yeah, I just... 
I just don't see a lot of I don't I don't see a lot of offensive firepower here for both teams, especially with the no. Giants. I, I just if don't Saquon see it. were to if Saquon were to pop off, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, just the fact that he's doing what he's doing, despite the injuries he's gone through, and Lord knows everything else. Like I said, the New York scrutiny and the media of everything. You know, he's washed. He's done. Da 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 da. And you know, Daniel Jones is not getting his fifth year option picked up. There's just there's a lot of pressure on Brian Dable, and I think that that coaching staff has done a very good job with ignoring it and kind of letting the buzz kind of be outside of the locker room because, again. I'm not saying that they've beat four or three of the best teams in the league, but they have done enough to win games in a convincing fashion to say, hey, we're relevant enough. We're here. And, you know, they've stopped Derrick Henry. They've done what they needed to do against bad teams like Chicago. They gave Dallas a run for their money on Monday Night Football. Like, they're not horrible. But again, until they go and beat consistent good teams, like, this is going to be the perfect setup. Um, I, I can't necessarily take New York as serious as I'd like them to. And with the injuries to the receiving core, there's not much faith I can have in an offense with just the relying upon Daniel Jones's arm and Saquon, where they're probably going to stack that box up to limit their offensive capabilities. I think the only way that the Giants win this game is they're going to have to milk that offense. Like What, what I mean is they're going to have to milk the clock. That's it's a better way of saying it. Keep the ball I, out I, of I, Iron's hands. I think they're gonna they're gonna have to heavily rely on running the football, and not just getting you know points on the board. Obviously, you have to get touchdowns on the board. You're gonna have to have drives. They're gonna have to be 15, 16, 17 play drives that are gonna take off at least you know five to six minutes per drive. And if they're able to do that effectively, granted, that's not an easy challenge going up against the Packers Hell defense. No. But if they could do that consistently enough and force Aaron Rodgers into some situations where he throws an errant pass, possibly intercepts him, or if they're able to force a fumble, that defense that the Giants have is definitely capable of that. And I think the Giants, the only way that they could win this game is if they just play rock-solid defense and they, they're able to put maybe a touchdown or two on the board and maybe a field goal. If the Giants are going to win this game, it's going to be like 17-10. to 10. Something like that, yeah. I, I, I really think that's the only way they're going to be able to win this game. Because when I look at their defense so far, that's what's kept them in it. Their defense has been playing solid, and their offense is doing enough to get by. Granted, it's not in convincing fashion, but you know, if you could walk off the field with a dub in the left-hand column, you take it. You know, it's honestly the mantra the Colts are probably telling themselves right now. But you know, I, I think it's going to be a very competitive game. But it's going to be a slugfest. So this is going to be... Snooze fest, maybe. But this is going to be largely a defensive battle. I think both defenses are going to rise to the occasion on this one. Going to have to, honestly. Which is going to actually be the perfect point to carry over into the next topic that I want to talk about. Or the next segment that we're going to talk about. Which is going to be uh, Dallas going to LA to face the Rams. Dallas is shockingly 3-1. and one. Cooper Rush has led the Cowboys to this record despite Dak being injured, despite the lack of their offensive faith and capabilities on the offensive line. Um, <laughs> the Cowboys are out here 3-1, and one, and I don't think anybody thought that was going to happen, including Kyle and myself. You go to the other side of the ball, and the defending Super Bowl champs look like crap. Offensive line, they got smacked by Sam Fran. Jalen Ramsey's getting exposed. I mean, Aaron Donald is Aaron Donald. That's never going to change. But outside of one player... Their quarterback in Matt Stafford is playing horrible. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, he leads the league in interceptions. Maybe not after this week because of Matt Ryan, but uh, dude, it, it's 
he is just selling, as we would say, and and you know playing Call of Duty, and you're just not performing or whatever. But Tyler, I I, I gotta ask you, man, can the Rams find a way to turn it around, or are Micah Parson and those boys about to knock the Rams back at home? I'm gonna be honest with you, Kev. I I think the Cowboys are gonna get this win in L.A. And the only reason why I, I'm picking the Cowboys over the Rams is I just have no faith in the Rams offense right now. And that's shocking for me to say based on what the Rams did last year, winning the Super Bowl. This looks like a completely different offense and the team just doesn't look in rhythm. When I look back to that 49ers game that they had, you know, last Monday night, they were atrocious. Now, granted the 49ers have a good defense. I will give San Fran some credit in that regard. The Rams allowed seven sacks in that game. Seven. I mean, we always kind of make the point of the Bengals having a bad offensive line because Joe Burrows get hit left and right. Well, the Rams got to put up a Bengals type of offensive line performance, giving up that many sacks against San Fran. And that was a game that Kevin and I picked the Rams quite convincingly to beat San Fran in that matchup. And it just turned out the completely opposite direction. And when I look at this game, when the Rams go up against the Cowboys, I think there's a very good chance that the Cowboys could put up five to six sacks in this game. Just because they've proven it time and time again. It's just relentless the amount of pressure that Dallas's front four can bring. And when you look back to what the Cowboys did last week against Carson Wentz and the Commanders, they were able to bring hellacious pass rushes throughout the entire course of the game. Essentially, that defense held that Carson Wentz-led Commander offense to only 10 points. And there's a very good chance that a similar type of performance can happen in this game against Matt Stafford just because outside of the Falcons game for the Rams, they've struggled mightily on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, I understand that Matt Stafford and Cooper Cup have a pretty solid relationship with their chemistry, but when it comes to Matt Stafford and Allen Robinson, man, it is shaky at best. And it's just a point of emphasis that I think is growing as the season goes along. They have got to get that chemistry worked out between Robinson and Stafford because if they can't get that together, this offense is going to struggle. And not only that, their offensive line needs to improve because you know Matt's getting hit. It's leading to errant passes. It's leading to turnovers. And until the Rams can turn it around offensively, I just don't have a lot of faith in them. And that's despite the fact that they have somewhat of a decent de- defense to work with. But when the offense is just giving the ball left and right, it's putting your defense in a bind. And it's giving the other team opportunities to score. I think there's a very good chance that the Rams could turn the ball over two to three times in this game. And I think when you look at the Cowboys here, the Cowboys offense has done enough to win them games. Primarily, it's been their defense that has led to a 3-1 and record. But Cooper Rush, despite the fact that Kevin and I thought that the Cowboys season was over and done with as soon as Dak went down because their offense didn't show us any sort of life whatsoever. They've been able to run the ball consistently with Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. And Cooper Rush is doing enough to not lose in the game. He's not turning the ball over consistently. He's passing the ball effectively, and they're putting enough points on the board to win games. Granted, it may not be where Cooper Rush is throwing 300 to 400 yards a game, and he's throwing four to five touchdowns a game, but it's a winning formula for them. And as much as much talk as that Cowboys coaching staff has gotten over the years, Kellen Moore and Mike McCarthy have done enough to put this team into situations where they can win games and so far, the first four games, they've largely succeeded. And I think in this matchup, I think they do it again. I think the Cowboys win this one in a relatively close game. I don't think it's going to be high scoring. 
I think the Cowboys win this one by the score of like 23 to 20. I think it's going to be a slugfest, like a lot of games that we're probably covering this week. But overall, I think the Cowboys bump up to four and one in the season and the Rams are sitting at a two and three record five weeks into this into the year. Dude, I couldn't agree more, except I think it's going to be a little bit different on my end. I got the Cowboys winning, but I don't think it's going to necessarily be a close one by three. I think this could be anywhere from seven to ten points just because Nick Bosa leads the league in pressures on a quarterback, right? Nick Bosa is one of the most elite pass rushers in this game, just like his brother Joey, unfortunately, who was out for the year. But when you look at Micah Parsons, when you look at the comparisons he's been getting, when you look at the mission he seems to be on this year, he is an unstoppable force in and of itself. And that's just one person. This Dallas defense is overperforming by miles. I mean, you you couldn't pay me enough money, even if this roster was at full strength. And you would tell me back in August that the Dallas Cowboys would have one of the better defenses in the NFL and have a 3-1 record with a backup quarterback. I'd look at you and I'd laugh hysterically. Um, I can't necessarily put my finger on it, but there's something about Cooper Rush that screams poise. There's something that screams um, calm under pressure. Somebody that is going to be a clock and game manager. He's not going to necessarily do something that's going to win you a game, but he's definitely not going to go and give the other team the ball and lose you a game either. This defense does enough to keep them within range, and Cooper does enough to move the ball down the field with the play action with Pollard and, and, and Ezekiel Elliott. D.D. Lamb has performed a little bit better over the last couple of weeks. Michael Gallup has returned. This offense seems to be moving forward in the right direction. And with L.A. basically moving backwards, uh, Jalen Ramsey's been exposed multiple times. Bobby Wagner has mi- it clearly has missed a step, albeit he is tackling and making plays in his own right, but he just doesn't look like the Bobby Wagner of old. We all knew that was going to come, especially with age. Uh, it's just... It's led by Matt Stafford, and with Trayvon Diggs being one of the better ball-hawking corners in the league, nobody that's going to go out there and cover and lock you up, in my personal opinion. I still think he's a little overrated in that category, but with someone who's going to go out there and take the ball, and someone that's going to make a play, and someone that can go out there and actually cover for the most part, I think that Dallas is a lot better of a team than people give them credit for, and if all Matt Stafford does is throw to Cooper Cup, you're just going to see a whole lot of digs lined up on Cup, and if you're going to see a lot of bubble screens, if you're going to see a lot of Uh, screenplays, I don't necessarily think it's going to bode very well. Matt Stafford needs to step up. The offensive line needs to step up. And the defense obviously needs to step up. You have three all pros at every single level, and I'm not seeing enough from each of them. Trayvon, excuse me, Jalen Ramsey being the worst of it. That play against Debo Samuel last week on Monday night was atrocious. You're going to tell me you have him one-on-one in open field and you just get embarrassed. You basically let him run by you. You make a failed attempt at a tackle. Dude, you're an all-pro caliber, paid top corner. You're the self-proclaimed second coming of primetime, and you're going to sit there, and you're not going to make a tackle in the open field? It's just not a good look for you, man. I'm tired of you talking crap on podcasts on Mondays and Tuesdays saying, I got to do better. You know, I'm the best. I'm the, I am him. Show it. There are plenty of other corners out there that are doing it with less, and you have no excuses. So until the Rams ship up, until the Rams give me a reason to give them a benefit of the doubt, I'm going to go with a backup quarterback and a good defense over an overrated offense and a piss-poor offensive line. So I'll take the Cowboys by 7 or 10. Yeah, it's it's really kind of been one of the more shocking results that we've seen in the first four weeks of the year so far is the fact that the Cowboys have looked stellar. And granted, you know, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily the most flashy team, 
that we've seen so far. Not but at all. when it comes to effectiveness, they're right up there. They're executing at a high. They're executing at a high level, and I think it really goes back to that defense. Their pass rush has been phenomenal. Micah Parsons looks like he's playing at an All Pro level. Demarcus Lawrence has had moments here, here and there, but by and large, it's just I think that that front four is essentially the bedrock of that defense because on the back end they can get beat. You know Trayvon. Trayvon had a pretty good game against the Commanders last week. He was able to get some decent pass breakups last week when they needed him to. He was also able to get an interception. I believe it ended up being a touchback. I could be wrong on that one, but I remember him getting an interception against Carson last week. But overall, it's just the Cowboys defense is putting themselves in a great position to win games. And if they're able to continue that against the Rams, I think we have to make a point of emphasis that the Cowboys may have a top five defense here. And who would have thought that? No, not me. The, the the performances speak of that. Now, granted, I have to be careful here. We're only five weeks in. They have a lot of time Dallas, to screw Dallas this up. Chokes a they lot got a lot of time. And, I, and I'm not going to put you know a lot of investment, a lot of personal investment into the Cowboys yet. Just because they've had moments of greatness here and there, and then it's followed up by ineptitude. It's followed up by inconsistency and then incompetence. So overall, they're off to a decent start. We'll see what happens when Dak gets back because I would imagine he's going to be the starter when he comes back. Even yeah, the way that Cooper has... Pay him but way you're, you're too much pay, money. To... Yeah. But Cooper has filled in quite nicely. Right. How crazy would it be, though? And I'm just kind of throwing this out there to you as, as a hypothetical. How crazy would it be if Cooper became the full-time starting quarterback for the Cowboys over Dak. I'm pretty sure the entire state of Texas would set itself on fire, especially with the money that Jerry's paying him. Um, I Listen, Jerry is talking way too highly of Dak coming back in the coming weeks for there to be any controversy. Now, if Dak comes in and shits the bed, that's a whole different conversation. But in terms of Cooper taking the job, I'd have to see something from Dak to indicate that he's not 100%, whether that be throws are off, turnovers, he gets hurt again. Cooper is building himself a resume right this very moment that is speaking for a payday. Not a starting job, but maybe somewhere along the lines of sitting behind a veteran that you can actually take an opportunity for. He's showing that he can be a viable quarterback in the league, and I think that he deserves a little bit more recognition. People don't understand. Once again, I will make the point that they claim to know how the game works. You are spoiled, and by you, I mean the average viewer. These offenses are going out there and putting out 400, 500 yards per game, throwing four or five touchdowns a game, sitting there throwing to the likes of Calvin Johnson, Randy Maul, all these big-name receivers in NFL history, and you're like, I need a score to be 45 to, 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 to 48, like last week's Seahawks and Lions game. Cooper Rush doesn't need to do that. No quarterback in the league needs to do that. You need to move the ball down the field. You need to not have any turnovers. You need to keep the ball away from the other team. And you need to find ways to score, whether that is driving your team down to score a field goal, whether that is driving down to score a touchdown, whether that's having a 15-fucking-minute drive. I know that's an exaggeration. That's an entire quarter. I'm just saying, if you're keeping the ball away from the other team, if you're scoring efficiently at a good clip, your defense is playing well, that is a team victory. You Mm -hmm. don't need a quarterback to go out there and give you Pat Mahomes numbers or freaking Matthew Stafford numbers from when he was playing with freaking Calvin Johnson, basically chucking it up and saying, fuck it, Calvin's down there somewhere. 
you just need someone that's going to be a good game manager that's going to find a way to get you down the field to put you in a good position to win football games. Cooper Rush has done that to a T, and that is not just a backup's role. That's any quarterback in the league, and that is why they have won games because he hasn't done anything to lose them a game. And until he does, I believe that he has a solid chance to potentially take this job from Dak if Dak comes back and he is not performing to the likes of Jerry Jones. I think there's something that we have to kind of take into account with the Cowboys, though. And I think this kind of goes to your point of, like, when it comes to the fans wanting, like, high-scoring, electrifying football. Obviously, that's what we all want. That's all what we want to see. You know, that's why we tune in every Sunday, because we're just drawn to that. But when it comes to winning football games, there are more ways to winning football games than just, you know, throwing for 500 yards, throwing for five touchdowns, and winning a game, like... 38 to 35, you know, where you can look back. It's like, wow, that was like one of the greatest shootouts that we've seen in, you know, a long time. When it comes to Dallas in particular, I think the way that they're winning is very simple. Chip away, chip away, chip away. Essentially do enough on the offense. You establish, I wouldn't say, you know, throw the ball 80 yards and hope for, you know, CD lamb to come down with it. Touchdown on the first play. Like this isn't like Patrick Mahomes going out there and throwing it to Tyreek Hill back in the day where he could just burn by everybody and score in one play. It's not like that. But if you can establish good, consistent run game with Ezekiel Elliott, Tony Pollard, and just get chunk play, get these little chunk plays, you know, four or five, six yards here and there, you know, you have Cooper rush come in, convert some, you know, critical third down conversions to extend the drive. I'm telling you like that really will bolster that offense and will generate momentum granted it may not end at a touchdown every time but if there's at least the confidence to be able to move the ball effectively up and down the field granted at these small little chunk plays not huge chunk plays i'm talking small ones that inspires confidence and it's one of those games where it's like it is sort of a grind it's not where you just blow a team out and the game's over by halftime but if you're able to just establish your foothold on the offensive line at the line of scrimmage and win those battles and just slowly just chip away throughout the game. You know, you could walk away at the end of the game. If you've won after 60 minutes, that was a great performance. And it's not because it's because the team is offensively brilliant and the team is just, you know, putting up 30, 40 points a game. But if you can win those games where it's like 23 to 20, 23, 17, or like, 27 24 those games that that can get a little bit grimy man those are the games that you walk away with and that could really inspire a team and really generate some momentum and i think when it comes to dallas i'm of the mindset that the offense is doing enough but it's effective and that defense is what's giving them a chance because to me the fact that their defense is playing that well that's why they're in a 3-1 situation right now and I was in the mindset that they could have potentially been 0-4 or 1-3 to start off the year. But you combine all those factors together, Dallas is in a good situation here. We'll see how long it lasts. They always find a way to screw it up. But I think this is a winning formula for them. If they just kind of find a way to grind it out offensively and play stellar defense on the back end, they could use that to their advantage. I really believe that. Uh, I couldn't agree more. So, you know. It's just kind of it's just kind of how it goes, but you know they found a way to win games, and if this is the way they're going to do it, good on them. 
So you don't have to put up 30, 40 points to win a game. Put up 23 points and your your defense holds the other team to 14, 17 points. You can win games like that all day. So, but with that said, uh, we'll move on to our next game. And that is going to be the Sunday night matchup that's going to take place between the Cincinnati Bengals and the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, just to kind of set the scene for you guys with this one, uh, Cincinnati sitting at a 2-2 two two record. The Ravens are also sitting at a 2-2 two two record, so both teams are looking to get over 500 in the Sunday night matchup. This is definitely one of the featured matchups of the weekend. It should definitely be better than the primetime game that we were shown on Thursday night. So hopefully we'll get a better performance on Sunday night between Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being quite a game on Sunday night. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, on the Sunday night matchup between the Bengals and the Ravens, who do you think is going to come out on top and why? I got to go with Cincinnati, man. Baltimore has just basically choked away their last couple of games, and they have just not played very well, excluding the New England dominance game. Um, you know what? I can't even say that because they gave up 26 points to Mac Jones. Um, I, Dude... This team is so talented, albeit they don't have the greatest receiving core just like Indy, but with Lamar Jackson leading the way and having arguably one of the best tight ends in football and Mark Andrews, they found a way to get it done offensively. They click. They, they're a first-half football team is what I'm trying to say. But in that second half, man, they, just, they lose their identity. They lose themselves. They're not able to move the ball effectively. They turn it over. They end drives in three and outs. They end drive with field goals instead of touchdowns. It's just... They're not doing well, and that defense has been exposed week in and week out. Now, their secondary has a whole lot of Pro Bowl names with the likes of Marcus Peters, Marlon Humphreys. Obviously, you have Marcus Williams back there, who they acquired from New Orleans this season. And they make their plays. Let's let's not get that twisted. You know, they have a pass breakup here. They have an interception here, a forced fumble there. But it's in little itty-bitty spurts, like we were just talking about with Cooper Rush, these little itty-bitty signs of life. On a defensive end, on the defensive end, you need to be consistent. If you don't, you're going to let the other team score. That's usually the point of a defense, you know, stop the other team from scoring. Baltimore has not stopped anybody. They blew a 17-point lead against Buffalo. They blew a 28-point lead against Miami. They almost let New England claw back in that game. I Again, I, Kyle would know how close that was as opposed to me because I didn't see that game. But the fact that you gave up 26 to Mac Jones, who's been struggling this season prior to his injury... I can't necessarily put faith in you to say that you're going to stop Joe Burrow. We know the receiving core that the Bengals have. We know the running back that the Bengals have. We know that the defense of the Bengals is better than what it has been over the last couple of decades. And it's just, they look to be getting back into their groove after the victory against the Jets, after the victory that they just had last week against, uh, of course, now I'm going to draw a blank. The Dolphins on Thursday night. Now, Tua got hurt, so they did face Teddy Bridgewater, but they capitalized in moments that they needed to. They made stops on defense, and they scored and moved the ball on offense. I think with Joe Burrow gaining confidence, with this offensive line looking to be a little bit more confident in themselves as well in terms of just keeping Joe Burrow upright, I think it's going to be not necessarily a blowout, but I could see this game going up to 10 to 14 points of a difference if this game gets out of hand early. Now, for Baltimore, you know your bread and butter is Lamar Jackson and an RPO. I need you to lean on J.K. Dobbins. Not because Kyle and I both have him in fantasy, but because you know that if you keep the ball out of Joe's hands, that's going to force them to have to throw the ball consistently. We all know when Joe has to throw it and you take the ball out of Joe Mixon, Joe Mixon's hands, that eliminates the play action. That eliminates the opportunity for you to be successful to take the ball away from the other team. 
I need Baltimore to milk the clock, keep the ball out of Joe's hands, and find a way to attack the play action over the top. They do not have Jesse Bates at this moment in time because of injury, and their secondary in terms of Cincinnati has been questionable in certain games. Their success to victory ride and dies with Lamar Jackson's performances. Aside from just being the quarterback who touches the ball every play, he is also their leading rusher. Lean on J.K. Dobbins, which would open up this offense completely. I think they will be fine. If they don't, if they try to come out of the gate and just try to throw, 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 this game could get out of hand and get ugly quickly. So again, I'm picking the Bengals for the fact of I think that they're going to be a little bit more confident. This is a big division game. Joe Burrow last season owned the Ravens and almost threw for 1,000 yards in the two games they played against them. And I think that that chip is still there. So I'm going to go with the Bengals by about 10 points this game. But uh, hopefully Lamar Jackson can turn it around and at least make this competitive. It's kind of interesting because honestly, this is a tricky game for me to pick. I think I'm going to agree with you on this one. I am going to pick the Bengals on this one. I don't have a lot of confidence with it, but I have just more confidence in Cincinnati than I do Baltimore at this point in time. When I look at Baltimore, Baltimore to me should have a better record than what they have. They're two and two, and you can make a very good case that this team should be four and up. And when you look at their two losses, it's simply because they have had terrible second half performances. Like Kevin said, you know, when they were up 35, I believe they were up 35 to 14 against the Dolphins uh, late in the second half. They ended up screwing that game away. They gave up 28 unanswered points and ended up losing that game 42 to 38. Like it was really embarrassing of a, of a loss. And when it comes to last week against the Bills, they were up 20 to three. Now, albeit it was a little bit earlier in the game when they held that lead, they ended up, I think, getting it to 20 to 10 at halftime. But even so, you have a two-possession lead going into halftime. You got to be able to make some sort of second-half adjustments to be able to give your team a chance. And in both of those losses, they have failed to really convert on third downs with the offense. And to me, that's where this all stems from. The fact of the matter is the teams that they're going up against are playing great second-half defenses because they are not allowing Lamar Jackson and that Ravens offense to convert on third down. And it's giving the ball back against that defense, against the Ravens defense, and I think at this point, I think if the Ravens defense, if they're of the mindset that the offense is in a little bit of a lull, whether it can't get into some sort of rhythm where they're putting points on the board consistently, I think that team defensively, I think they get a little bit, I have a little bit of a lack of confidence to say it. Just because I think when they feel that the offense just isn't there to be able to provide any sort of support, I think that team defensively, they gave up points. They start making mental mistakes and they start giving up points in the process. So overall, I just don't have a lot of faith that the Ravens can play a full 60 minutes that could lead to a win. I think that they could win like 30 minutes, maybe 45 minutes throughout the game. But when it comes for a full 60, that 60 minute mark for them, as far as winning games consistently, I think it's going to be something of note moving forward because I don't think they're going to be able to do it. And I think when it comes to the Bengals in this one, the Bengals have their own issues too. They have improved on the offensive line just because when you look at the last two games, they've only given up three sacks compared to the first two weeks of the year where they gave up 13. So they have improved in that regard. And hopefully that does continue for them going into this game. And I think there's a very good chance that they could expose that Ravens defense just because I think if Joe Burrow is given time to be able to move in and out of the pocket effectively, to be able to get the ball to 
guys like T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, Joe Mixon out of the backfield. I think it's a very good chance that the Bengals could put some points on the board here. I think when it comes to them defensively, I think they have a very good chance to be able to slow down Lamar Jackson and that Baltimore offense. Like you said, Kev, I think when it comes to Baltimore's receiving core, they are relatively weak. Granted, they have some decent guys to work with. They have Bateman. They have Duvernay. They also have uh, Demarcus Robinson as well. But, you know, they go through hot flashes or they go through cold streaks as well. So you you don't really know what you're going to get with the Ravens offense. They could be in a situation where they could put up 35 points or they could also put up 20 points. And it really is all dependent on Lamar Jackson's shoulders. And I do believe that they're going to key in on Lamar Jackson. And I think they're going to be able to slow them down effectively. But the only thing that I think that could work against them is if they give up decent chunk plays to J.K. Dobbins. I think if the Ravens are smart, they definitely lean on J.K. in this game to give that Cincy defense a di- different look. But I think when it's all said and done, you know, when it comes to these AFC divisional games, I think they're always tough. You know, they're well-fought wins, whoever gets it at, at the end of the day. But I do think that since he gets this one, I will say it's it's going to be a one-possession game when it's all said and done. I think since he does enough on the offensive side of the ball, and I do believe that that Cincy defense can force a turnover from two or a turnover or two, excuse me, when they go up against the Ravens on Sunday. I think, you know, when you tie those factors in together, I think the Bengals come out on top. I'm going to say like 27 to 21. I think it's going to be a relatively close game, but I think the Bengals make some second half adjustments and I think they slow down that Ravens offense, specifically in the third and fourth quarter. I think it's going to be the difference maker. So I'm going to go with the Bengals by six in this one. It's going to be a good one. And I know that this next game is definitely going to be a good one too. And that would be the Monday night matchup that we're going to have between the Raiders and the Chiefs. Um, Just to kind of set the scene for you guys, uh, the Raiders are coming off their first win of the year. They beat the Denver Broncos in week four. And then when you look at the Chiefs, the Chiefs had quite an outstanding performance against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, beating them quite soundly. They're also sitting at a three and one record. Uh, they're sitting at a three and one record and at the top of the AFC West. So you have a team, you have the you have both teams here with basically opposite records. The Chiefs have looked very good so far. The Raiders may have found a spark after losing their first three games. So the Raiders are definitely looking at a chance to get closer to 500, where the Chiefs are definitely trying to uh, extend their winning ways in the AFC West. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with this Monday Night matchup that's going to take place between the Raiders and the Chiefs, who do you think is going to come out on top and why? I think this is going to be the matchup of the weekend. Um, I think, well, obviously, this being a Monday Night game, it might be a little bit different. But, you know, for the sake of football, it'll be the weekend. Uh, I think this is the close game of the weekend for the sheer fact that the Raiders made themselves notable once more. The Raiders woke up, they found a way to dominate, and they won the game that they had last week against Denver, albeit Denver isn't the greatest offensive team. This is the confidence booster a team like Vegas needs. They have too much talent on the offensive side of that football to struggle as much as they have. Now, there have been miscues, there have been timely turnovers, there have been bad play calling, there's a lack of defense outside of... Hobbs and of course you know Chandler Jones and Max Crosby and a couple of other players but when you look at them from an overall topical perspective they are so much better than what they have put out thus far and I think that that one game that they just played is going to be that catalyst piece that's going to say we can definitely compete with the best of them now I still think Kansas City wins because Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes have shown that they are still the team to beat as of 
the as as of last week. Now I know Buffalo is also the same record, but with the injuries to Buffalo, I have to give the edge to Kansas City because they are just firing on all cylinders. Albeit they had that blip against the Colts two weeks ago. That's neither here nor there because they continued their dominance the very next week with Pat going completely off and embarrassing Tom Brady and the Bucks on Sunday night. Now, I'm going to go on a limb and say that this game is a little bit closer because it is a divisional game and because the Raiders are going to play them a little bit tougher. Josh Jacobs finally woke up and has come back to reality, knowing that he is one of the better downhill runners when healthy. They have arguably the best receiver in the game in Devontae Adams. You can make the argument again that they also have the top tight end in the game in Darren Waller when he's given the proper targets. Probably one of the better slot receivers in Hunter Renfro, and so on and so on and so forth. McDaniels needs to start and establish the line of scrimmage and run the football. If he runs the football and creates the play action that opens up so many opportunities for one-on-one matchups with their receivers outside, and if they can get some mismatches with Waller in the middle of the field, I think that they can expose Kansas City's defense as well. But Kansas City's defense has come to play. Their pass rush is good. Their rush defense has been solid. They've been able to create turnovers, and it's just been an all-around team competitive season for them thus far. I mean, 3-1 and without Tyreek Hill and... You know, you know the 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 just doubtings of what the Chiefs were going to be able to put out there after the Colts loss, and for them to go out there and embarrass one of the best defenses in the league, in the Buccaneers, I think that speaks a lot of volume. But again, with the Raiders always playing them, their divisional rivals tough. I think that this game will surprise a lot of people. I think that this game may be a little bit more high scoring than people are expecting, especially because the Raiders don't exactly have one of the most consistent offenses. I would say that this game goes up somewhere in the realm of 28-35 Kansas City. I think Edwards Hilaire has been playing exceptionally well. I think Juju Smith-Schuster has been playing decent. And, of course, Travis Kelsey. This is arguably the battle of the tight ends in the NFL. Like This is 1A, 1B. This is 1 and 2, depending on how you rank it. I mean, if Darren Waller gets opportunities, he's one of the best. And, of course, Travis Kelsey gets his looks because he is the best. But... I don't know, man. Derek Carr always finds a way to play Patty tough, and I think that this game is going to be competitive at the least, but I'm predicting Kansas City to win this by at least seven points. So I got Kansas City, like I said, 35-28. Well, I think this is going to be a lot better than the Thursday night matchup that we had on one of our last primetime games. So I think that when you look at this matchup between the Chiefs and the Raiders, I think this is definitely probably the marquee matchup of the weekend. And I understand that that, may look a little bit weird just based off of the fact that the Raiders have a one and three record, but I'm with Kevin hundred percent. The Raiders, just from a talent perspective, what they're capable of, they're better than a one and three record. And granted, they've had some really tough games where they just let some of these games slip at the end, but that's better than a one and three team right now. They're definitely better than that. But when it comes to this game specifically, Kevin, I'm with you. I'm going with the chiefs too. The chiefs really impressed me uh, Sunday night against Tampa last week. I mean, granted, you know, getting a fumble on the kickoff return within the first like five seconds of the game and then scoring within the first 45 seconds of the game. I mean, that's a really high mark for the Chiefs to just get off to a really fast start and then keep that momentum the entire course of the game. I mean, when you're in a situation where you're putting up 35, 40 points a game, that's a really tough task for the defenses you're going up against because when it comes to the Raiders specifically, if the Raiders give up anything like Tampa gave up last week, the Raiders could probably give up 45 points to the Chiefs here just because that Chiefs offense is that explosive. And once again, I I may sound like a broken record here, but it's 
but Pat's on a mission right now. The guy is tied for first in the NFL with 11 touchdowns already. He has one of the highest, if not the highest QBR rating already. And taking that performance that he had against Tampa, I think there's a very good chance that he could be able to expose that Raiders secondary and put up 300 to 350 yards passing and possibly put up three touchdowns in the process. I was just blown away by what the Chiefs offense were able to do last week, not only just in scoring touchdowns, but they were so effective in third downs. They were 10 of 12 as far as their efficiency was and how much they were converting on third downs. If they're able to even if they're able to crack 50% going against the Raiders, I think that bodes really well in their favor. Now, on the flip side, when it comes to the Raiders, they finally found a decent working option with Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs had a hell of a performance against the Broncos last week. And really, it was the first time this year where Josh Jacobs actually got a decent amount of carries, and they finally utilized him properly. And when you have that situation working in your favor, it takes a lot of pressure off of Derek Carr to be able to just single-handedly carry that offense to the promised land. And I just think, by and large, I think the Raiders were finally able to establish a rhythm offensively because they finally gave the defenses that they were going up against a different look. Because Derek Carr was a lot better protected simply just because the defense had to account for Josh Jacobs. When you have to account for Josh Jacobs, it puts that offense in a situation where they could be able to throw the ball to Devontae Adams 13 times and he comes down with 9 to 10 catches. You know, Darren Waller was effective. Matt Collins was effective. It just seemed like the Raiders offense finally kind of got it together. And I think that there's a very good chance that the Raiders can keep that momentum going against this game against the Chiefs because I don't think the Chiefs have that really good of a defense. I think... When you look back to Tampa last week, they still gave up over 30 points. Now, granted, a lot of those points were probably given up in garbage time, but still, you gave up 30 points. And I think that there's a very good chance that Derek Carr and that Raiders offense could put up 25, potentially 30 points in this game. But I just have to bring it back full circle here. I think that Patrick Mahomes is probably the MVP leader right now, and I think he's playing up to a level that we've seen in the past that's very scary to the defend against. And I think when it's all said and done, I think the Chiefs win this one by a touchdown. I, I'm going to say probably somewhere around 34 to 28, 34, 27, uh, just because I think both offenses are going to be pretty effective in this game. I think it, this may come down to a situation where who's going to turn the ball over first. And I think at this point, I'm more inclined to believe that Derek Carr is probably going to make that mistake more than Patrick Mahomes. And I think when you tie that factor in, I think that the Chiefs are going to get away with this one and end up moving to four and one on the season when it's all said and done. It's a hundred percent. Like I said, this is the marquee matchup for me. This is the game I want to see. This is the game I need Vegas to wake up. You know, like I need them Mm -hmm. to show that they're better than what they are. I predicted them to be the worst team in the division, but that doesn't mean that that takes away from the talent that they have. Mm -hmm. Josh McDaniels needs to do a lot better job. And I know that you know the capabilities that he has as a play caller coming from your system, Mm -hmm. albeit he was a head coach about a decade ago coaching Tim Tebow and the Broncos, and we all know how that ended. But you would hope with his second stint in New England that he would be that much better, and he showed that he could still be an incredible play caller. He has a great offensive mind, and he has so much talent which is that much better than what he had in Denver that many years ago. This is even better than what he's had in New England over the last five, ten years. So there's no reason why. I keep saying Oakland in my head, and I almost said it there. There's no reason why Vegas should be as bad as they are. If Derek Carr has an opportunity to 
just manage the game properly. And it's similar to what Cooper Rush is. You don't need to go for 400 yards. You have Josh Jacobs. Give him 15 to 20 touches. You have Devontae Adams. You have Darren Waller. Give them the looks. Josh needs to understand a balanced offense in this modern age of the NFL means you have to keep a balance. You can't throw the ball 60 times and expect Mm -hmm. to win. You cannot fall behind with your defense giving up 25 points, 24 points and a half, and expect your offense to be able to bounce back and win a game with your defense also holding the opposing offense. It just, it does not work that way. So the Raiders need to kind of get together and figure out their strengths and understand that if they don't get this together, especially with this being an interdivisional matchup, the season is going to get away from them quickly, and Josh McDaniels is going to be on the hot seat once again because it shows he's probably better as a coordinator as opposed to being a leader as a head coach. So there's a couple of different narratives in this game, and I just kind of wanted to touch on those really quickly. That's all. I think when it comes to the Raiders, we've brought this up before already. I think if they were to win this game, I mean, if they win it, if they win it in a shootout, good for them. I think that's very tough for them because the Chiefs are just firing on all cylinders right now. And we brought this up just a couple minutes ago, or just a couple segments ago. I think what they can do is if they run the ball effectively with Josh Jacobs and they chew up clock, and they keep Patrick Mahomes and that Chiefs offense on the sideline, I think that that they could be a winning formula for them. But it is tough. It's it's tough to establish those five to six, seven minute drives that take up a lot of time. But if they could be able to do that consistently and against that defense, against Casey's defense, they have a very good chance of being able to do that. There is a possibility that the Raiders can win this game. I don't have a lot of faith that they can do it, but they have the pieces to be able to move the ball effectively down the field against that defense. It's just whether or not that their defense is going to hold up against Patrick Mahomes. And at this point, I don't really have a lot of faith. I think what's going to happen, and this is how I kind of see this game playing out. Well, there's two ways. One is the Chiefs get off to a hot start, and then the Raiders have to play catch up the entire game. And that means Derek Carr's going to throw the ball 35, 40 times. Or it goes this way. The Raiders can get off to a decent start. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs offense, they fly down the field. And the Raiders are of the mindset that they need to match that speed. And they probably can't. And then what ends up happening is, is that they do a couple three and outs. The Chiefs take advantage of it. And then all of a sudden, you may go from a point where it's 7-0 in your favor, or if it's tied 7-7, and you have one or two three and outs back-to-back, it could be 21-7 before you know it. And against a team like the Chiefs, that can happen. Now, best case scenario is your defense steps up and maintains it at a 7-7 to or a 7-0 lead in your favor. But with the way that Chiefs offense is running right now, despite the fact that they don't have Tyreek Hill and Demarcus Robinson anymore, they could be able to get points quick. If they were able to basically break apart that Tampa defense last week, and Tampa had a really good defense going into that game, Vegas might be in some trouble. That's putting it mildly. You're lying. But... It should be a fun game. Definitely looking forward to it on Monday. And um, like I said, I think we've said it time and time again, those AFC West matchups, they are fun to watch. And that's definitely going to be a good one for sure. But with that said, we're going to transition to our last segment of the episode. We're going to transition to baseball here for a little bit. We're going to focus on Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge uh, is probably having one of the most successful seasons he might ever have in his career. 62 home runs. 
he broke the single season AL home run record against the Texas Rangers in the second to last game of the regular season. Uh, hit it in the first inning, I believe in the third pitch of the at bat and really is just had an awe inspiring season to say the least. Now, Kevin here is the Yankees fan. He's ride or die with them till the end of time. But Kevin, I got to ask you, what are your takeaways from Aaron Judge's historic season? I mean, he was just seeing the baseball at a completely different clip. I mean, he was walked at an incredible percentage. I mean, the intentional walks that he had received throughout the season is just crazy because of how people are scared of the impact that he has, not only in the long ball, but just putting the ball in play and putting his team in, in positions to win. I mean, the man had 131 RBIs this year. The man was also walked 111 times. That is absolutely ridiculous. He batted 311. You know, he, he scored 133 runs of himself. He had 177 hits. You name it, he did it. He was able to do everything that he needed to do to carry this franchise, to carry this team to the record that they are right now in winning the American League East and being one game away from winning 100 games. Aaron Judge, in like as a power hitter, let's just put it in the, these terms, there have been so many people in the league that have been just absolute hammers, right? They've just been able to put the ball out of the stadium and they've been electrifying, but they haven't been able to last. They haven't been able to stay healthy or they get traded away or they sign somewhere else and their career takes a dip. Aaron Judge wants to be a Yankee. Aaron Judge needs to be a Yankee for the sake of not just New Yorkers, but just Yankee fans in general, because he's been able to do something this season that no one has done since 1961, and that is dominate uh, the long ball category. And with 62 home runs and a record standing for well over 50 years, you look at this and you say, this is genuine history. This is one of the greatest seasons any right-handed hitter in the AL has ever experienced. And... There's not really saying too much. You can make the argument that this is the real home run, home run record because Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds were all documented and proven to have taken steroids. I know that Bonds was never proven to have, but we all know the size that he was when he was in Pittsburgh when he was drafted to what he ended up in in San Francisco. It doesn't add up. I don't care what anybody says. I'm of the mindset of this is going to be the home run record because unless Judge comes back with a positive test for PEDs or something like that. This was a natural record. This was a home record. And this was something that is going to be carried on for hopefully the foreseeable future. Aaron Judge overall had an, an absolute incredible season. We all know that he is the true MVP. Shoei Otani is an incredible baseball player. He won the MVP last season. But with Judge leading in almost every single statistical category that a hitter can outside of batting average, unfortunately, he was taken away from that opportunity with the Triple Crown race. But if he's doing everything that he can, played as many games as he possibly could, uh, is a gold glover in right field as well, you can't necessarily tell me something outside of Otani also pitching that is going to make him the MVP. Because if that's the case, as if Otani bats over 285, hits 30 home runs, pitches in 20 games every single season because he plays both positions, he's going to be the MVP for the rest of his life. We've gotten over the hype of, you know, the guy playing both positions. Aaron Judge just literally made history this season, and I think that that needs to be given a little bit more credit than it has been. And that's not just Yankee bias, that's baseball bias. There's a reason why Roger Maris held this record for as many years as he did. And I believe wholeheartedly that Aaron Judge deserves this MVP. 
but as a Yankee fan, this doesn't mean anything to me because we need to win a World Series. And I know that we're going to talk about that in a couple seconds with Kyle, but I'm just saying the individual season and what it means for the team are two different things. Happy for him. Happy he broke it as a Yankee. I'm happy another Yankee holds this record in general. But this needs to translate into the postseason. Now that the stress of the record is alleviated, now that they've clinched the AL East, now that the playoffs start in a few days, this needs to transcend into, all right, chasing history is over. We made it. Now let's go win us a title. So kudos to Aaron Judge. I think it's one of the greatest seasons I've ever seen with my own eyes. And uh, hopefully this record stands for many, 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 many more years. I think that was well said. I think when I look back at Judge's season, I mean, 62, 62 home runs. What are you going to say? The guy was just an absolute beast at the plate. And Kevin, I mean, you know, you're the Yankee fan here. And, you know, I'm just going to kick this one to you on this one. It's just, you know, Judge has provided so many moments this year for the Yankees. Do you think that he could be able to carry what he did in the regular season into the postseason and possibly, you know, put them in a situation? I'm not saying like go all the way, just win a World Series. But do you think that if he can carry that type of performance in the regular season into the postseason, do you think that he puts them in a position to at least make it to a World Series? Absolutely. I mean, when you talk about a player of his magnitude and what he's been able to provide us with his limited postseason appearances thus far, granted, it's nothing stellar, but he also hadn't had a season like this since 2017, which was his rookie year. And we all know how far we went there. And we were robbed, but that's neither here nor there. I'm not going to continue to live in the past. He had a better season this season than he did his rookie season. He's a better player. He's more experienced than discipline at the plate. I believe that we have a very good team as it is currently assembled. And I believe that our pitching staff is better than it was back then as well. So with Aaron Judge having the season that he did, with the record officially being broken and the weight off of his shoulders being uplifted to say, it's done, now let's go win. Him being in a contract year and him being in that mindset of, I want this payday, he has so many motivating factors internally for himself and as a, as a Yankees player to say, I have everything in my, in my, what's Power. the word I'm looking for? No, 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 no. Like everything in my toolbox, something that I'm trying to make. Let's just go with power. I have everything in my power and in my capabilities to carry this team to at least a World Series appearance. We have the pitching staff. We have the players. We need to make it happen. Everybody is led by somebody in every playoff run throughout baseball. There's always that one guy that's just is a consistent anchor to mm -hmm. provide them with success in the postseason. And I think this is going to be that year that Aaron Judge takes it to that next level to say, this isn't just a regular season thing. I'm not saying we're going to win the World Series or anything, but I'm saying he is going to show that at least it wasn't him that kept us from winning. So... I think Aaron Judge definitely carries us into that next level. And not only that, I mean, I have to say, I mean, this year has been quite, it's been quite different when it comes to just really the home run records. Obviously, Aaron Judge getting 62 home runs uh, to break the AL home run record is, is one thing, but I can't believe that Albert Pujols is still like banging home runs left and right. Like, I mean, when he got 700, he got it, he got it in the same night. Like he hit, two home runs on bat-to-back -back at bats, 699 and then 700. And he's still hitting dingers. He's at 703. And granted, I know this is his last year, 
Uh, they are going into the playoffs, but it's like, who would have thought that Albert Pujols being what, 41 or 42 years old, would just go on the tear that he did to end the season that he did with not only getting over 700 or getting 700 home runs, but actually eclipsing it and actually still maintaining a high level despite how old he is. Like, it's just phenomenal. So, you know, you could look at what Judge did in the AL as one thing, and you could look at what Pujols did in the NL as another thing. Just legends kind of in their own right. You know, Judge is kind of trying to establish it. Albert has already established it. But, I mean, two different leagues, don't get me wrong, but just incredible feats by both of these guys. I know that was kind of like a pivot off of the Judge thing, but I got to respect what both guys are doing. You know, Judge is still relatively young compared to Albert. You know, I think Albert is 12 years older than him. I think Judge is only 30. So, you know, there's definitely some room for Aaron to, you know, increase that home run total. But looking at Albert is not necessarily the the worst uh, case of inspiration, to say the least. Not at all. So, but overall, it's just, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fun postseason for the playoffs. Um, Obviously, we had the wild card weekend coming up this weekend. Um, and then after that, we will go into the ALDS, which should be fun. So I know Kevin's going to be sweating bullets when it comes to you guys would play either the Rays or the Guardians, if I remember correctly. Oh, Guardians. Yes, 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 yes. So it'll be interesting to say the least. I, I also got to give some props to the Mariners for the first time uh, the making the playoffs years? in 20, over 20 years. I remember I was watching one of the uh, I was watching the radio announcer for the Mariners when they clinched the playoff spot. He was just going nuts, and I loved it. And good for them. You know, it's been a long time coming. It's been two decades since they've been in the playoffs. So I think it's well-deserved for the Mariners. We'll see whether or not they can carry it, you know, past the uh, wild card round and get into the um, and get into the ALDS. But overall, you know, good on them. Fact. Um, and also, Michael Kay, the longtime Yankees broadcaster and, you know, announcer and all these different things. After 30 years, he announced his retirement at the end of the season. So if there's another reason why the Yankees need to do something with history on the line and, of course, Judge being on the line for a contract and Michael Kay retiring, there are a couple of you know internal narratives that have led us to believe that we, we need to, to find a reason to push through. So I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. Guys, we've been stuck on 27 for a while. We're the greatest sports franchise in fucking history. Please. Give me a reason to go home. I would love to go to the parade. I think it would be magical for me. I've, listen, I've had a long day. I, I, I just, I'm trying to manifest a World Series into my team, into my soul. As Kyle knows, I, they're literally my breath. The Yankees need to do this. So I will, I will end my rant on that. And I hope that these playoffs are just fun to watch. Oh, 100%. But uh, with that said, that'll pretty much wrap it up. Uh, from us you guys uh it's nice to have kevin back in the fold um i know there's been some uh there were some interruptions just based off of hurricane ian that rolled through florida last week and i I mean kevin got a little scary down there didn't it a little bit i mean granted i don't live by the beach or anything like that thankfully i'm 20 to 25 miles inland but you know being from new york the worst i've ever had is a blizzard and you know that's again to me when i was younger you're stuck inside. You don't go to school. Mom and dad aren't working. The roads are shut down. And you have hot cocoa. You just bundle up, you know, and if the, mm-hmm. the power goes out, 
You have enough coats and blankets and all these different things. You're your home. You're not like you're stuck outside in it, you know? So a hurricane's a whole different concept. Trees are breaking. Metal roof flaps are freaking flying. You got branches being broken and, and, and trees falling. It, it's Sabo and I were locked in the bathroom for about four or five hours because we don't have stormproof windows. So as the wind started to pick up and get pretty tough, um, we started to hear things shatter. A couple of windows above in the apartment above us broke. And, you know, obviously you're just worried about what the hell's going to happen. So it was it was definitely life changing in terms of my mental to, to, to actually experience a hurricane because I ran for, for Irma. My family and I went to Atlanta because it was projected to just smack the middle of the state and crush us. And it, it hit and it, you know, it did some damage. But, dude, because Ian took such a last second turn, there was nowhere for us to go. It was pretty much just hope for the best. And, you know, I pray for the families out there in Fort Myers Beach, Sanibel, Captiva, all those places that were dashed, you know, Pine devastated. Island. Yeah, all those places. So as much as I had my own experience in terms of fear, it's nothing like the people that were out there and going through what they're going through. So again, prayers out to those families that, you know, survived and of course those that lost family members, but for those that also lost their homes, their vehicles, their possessions, it, it's no small feat, man. Hurricanes are no joke. That's why I want to get the fuck out of Florida. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest with you, it, I mean, out of the two of us, I was probably the one who was more stressing about the hurricane because originally that thing was like aimed right at Tampa. And within like the last 36 hours of that hurricane before it actually made landfall, it ended up making a turn towards Fort Myers and it just... I mean, people weren't ready for it. Like you said, it's just, you know, when you're talking about a difference of, you know, 120 miles, there's a huge difference when it comes to, you know, a storm making landfall in Fort Myers compared to Tampa. You know, people can can look at it. It's like, well, it's not that far. Like 120 miles is a major difference. It's a two hour drive, you know, and where I was living in Tampa, we didn't get anything. I mean, we got a couple down branches and stuff and it was breezy for a little bit, but nothing like what, like you said, Sanibel got, with uh, Fort Myers Beach, Fort Myers Beach looked like, like hit by a bomb. I mean, it was just it yeah. was just awful. It looked like it was leveled, bro. Legit, like the pictures, the videos, all that stuff. I it mean, just, bro, it doesn't look the same. They had like an eighteen foot storm surge, and the thing is, like the eye wall sat in that area for like four to five hours, so it's like it wasn't a quick mover. It just kind of it slowly moved its way across the state, and there was something interesting about that storm. There was a hurricane back in like the mid 2000s called Hurricane Charlie. It made landfall in the exact same island as Hurricane Ian did. This one place called Kaya Costa. It's in between Captiva. And I think there's this one island that's north of Kaya Costa called Boca Grande. It's kind of like just off the coast of uh, of Cape Coral. And um, literally, it made landfall in the exact same island. Just like 17 years later or 17 to 18 years later. It's just, I don't know what it is with that one Island in particular, but bro, there's gotta be something They're like, there's like some sort of demons on that Island that are buried somewhere. Cause there's no way that you could have two like major hurricanes, basically cat four to cat five years. hurricanes within 20 years. And they hit the exact same spot. The only thing with Charlie is that it moved across the state in like six to seven hours. This one took like 36. It just was such a slow mover. That was the difference. But it's like, yeah, you you have a little bit more respect for Mother Nature after something like that. So it's like you said, just, you know, for the people that are you know trying to re- rebuild the pieces, I, 
it's not it's, it's gonna be a long time but yeah better you know better to be alive you know and rebuild the pieces than to lose everything so it's just gonna take a while for you know southwest florida to recover from that but i think that they'll i think that they can manage it for sure but you know with that said you guys uh we'll we'll wrap it up from here like i said you know it's great to have kevin back in the fold i know we got a little bit dicey there for a little bit but overall um just great to be back so uh, hopefully you guys enjoy the weekend games obviously um we got some solid college football games taking place this week on top of what we have for the nfl games and hopefully uh you guys uh enjoy the content that we provide to you guys whether it's on the audio platforms on apple Podcasts, spotify uh, google Podcasts, or if you watch our youtube content we definitely appreciate you guys tuning in and we just hope that you guys uh continue to support us as we move forward so kev i got nothing more to say floor's all yours bro well ladies and gentlemen it has been quite the uh Quite the journey, as Kyle had alluded to, and obviously at this point we're just happy that we made it to the other side. Both of our families are good to go, and you know we're just grateful for the opportunity to continue doing this. Um, we've seen growth on every single platform over the last couple of weeks, so of course you know Kyle and I are over the moon with football season being here, October being an incredible month for sports content. You got baseball playoffs starting off this weekend. You have the NBA coming back in a week or two. You have freaking the NHL coming back in a week or two, and then before you know it, obviously. College basketball is back and college football is already here. It's just, it's the perfect time to just sit here and continue to ride the wave that we're on successfully. So we'll keep you guys abreast. We'll keep you guys updated, dropping content where and when and wherever we can. And uh, like I said before, man, we just genuinely appreciate the support and we'll be seeing you guys again soon. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast Networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.